Let me encourage you to take your copy of God's Word and look with me to the book of Exodus. We'll be in Exodus chapter 1 this morning, verses 18 through 22. Exodus chapter 1, verses 18 through 22. We started last week in a series of sermons through the book of Exodus, and we start our second sermon today through this book of Exodus in Exodus chapter 1 verses 18 through 22 and here we see God's faithful promise to his people that his promises cannot be stopped by powerful world leaders The Lord has promised to his people all the way back from Genesis, we noted this last week, that indeed part of this creation principle is that the people of God would be fruitful and multiply. And we began the narrative in Genesis, or sorry, with Exodus, with this reminder that indeed this creation principle that was set forth in Genesis chapter 1 is going to continue. And we know from the very early stages of this second book of the Pentateuch that indeed God is going to be one who is faithful to his covenantal promises. And here in Exodus chapter 1 verses 8 through 22 we continue to see this promise of God fleshed out toward his people. Notice how this narrative here in verse 8 begins. Now there arose a new king over Egypt. So whatever has just taken place, Moses is giving us some clues in the way he is writing that there is going to be a shift. So if you don't even know the narrative of the book of Exodus, from just these words, we know something is changing in this storyline. There is a different king over Egypt or Oftentimes the text of scripture calls him the Pharaoh. There's a different ruler over Egypt now, Pharaoh. And notice what the text of scripture says. It is a king, it is a Pharaoh who does not know Joseph. Now why would it be important for Moses to remind us that there has arisen a king, a pharaoh, a leader over the nation of Egypt that does not know Pharaoh, or sorry, does not know Joseph. Well, you'll even remember when Joseph and the rest of the family went back to bury Jacob in Cana that even some of the high-ranking officials from among uh, Egypt went with Joseph to go and to uh, bury his father Joseph was one who had been placed in a high position of authority and influence in the nation of Egypt and he was used by God in a very real way to provide a means of salvation for the nation of Israel a time in which starvation or hunger had taken over the land God brought the nation of Israel into Egypt to provide salvation for them. Now the nation of Israel down in Egypt isn't providing salvation. They themselves are enslaved under a new ruler, under a new king. In some ways, the text is telling us that has no connection whatsoever to these past acts of God among the nation of Israel. Of Israel. Moses is not only telling us, friends, that this is a Pharaoh who doesn't know Joseph. Moses is telling us ultimately, this is a Pharaoh who doesn't know Joseph's God. And notice as this text progresses, it's not only through this mention of Joseph that we understand this Pharaoh does not know Joseph's God. But this Pharaoh will stand in complete, total opposition to Joseph's God. There is a new king in the land, and this new king is disconnected from the nation of Israel. 
and disconnected in any measurable way from any knowledge of this God that the nation of Israel has given themselves to. Verse 9, notice what Pharaoh says. And he said to his people, notice carefully the words of Pharaoh, for even Pharaoh in his opposition to God is going to be used by God to ultimately accomplish God's will in the nation of Israel and bring them to the promised land. But notice what Pharaoh says. Pharaoh said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Pharaoh doesn't even know what he's saying. Here's this Pharaoh who doesn't know Joseph, doesn't know the story of Joseph, isn't going to be familiar with the God of Joseph, and yet this Pharaoh who is so disconnected from Joseph and from Joseph's God is using Joseph's God's language to declare what is taking place. Pharaoh is acknowledging that God's creative purpose for his people will be accomplished, and Pharaoh doesn't even know it, but he can't stop it. Look at those words again. Pharaoh says, these people, the nation of Israel, the people of Israel, are too many and too mighty for us. What did God promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 about a people that he would give to him? Did he say that they would be a small, nomadic group of people who would be insignificant on the world stage and, and carry no influence? No. Abram, I'm going to give to you people that will be so numerous. They'll be like the sand on the seashore. They'll be so numerous, they'll be like the stars in the sky. You won't be able to count them. And you remember how the narrative started last week in Genesis chapter 1. Look back, sorry, in Exodus chapter 1 verse 1. Look back quickly in Exodus chapter 1 verse 1. And these are the names of the sons of Israel, the sons of Jacob, who came to Egypt with Jacob. We know from this text of scripture that this group of people were 70 in number. Now look what God has accomplished among the nation of Israel. Pharaoh is declaring, they're so many, they're so numerous, and they're dangerous for us. What began as small, humble beginnings has increased to a mighty display of God's favor. And friends, God's favor is always among his people, even when we can't realize it. And this is a situation I think all of us would declare is an unrealized understanding of God's favor. I don't think many of us would, or if any of us would raise our hand and say, yes, I think that I'm in favor with God as I am enslaved. And we're going to get there here in just a few moments, particularly in verses 13 and 14. And you'll hear just the verbs that come right after each other describing this slavery. Pharaoh says... Without even knowing it, God's will is being accomplished among us. Verse 10, come, let us deal shrewdly. Now this word here that Pharaoh uses is in the large majority of the time, in fact almost in every other occurrence, is a word that is oftentimes, or is, is translated as wisely, or a wise act. So notice what Pharaoh is using, is, is stating by his own language. Pharaoh perceives himself to be one who is wise and yet disconnected from God. But friends, if there's one narrative that we'll learn from not only this story this morning in the book of Exodus, but from the totality of the narrative of Exodus, there is no wisdom apart from Christ. 
And Paul would remind us in the book of in the book of 1 Corinthians that the wisdom of the world appears to be foolish. That the wisdom of God appears to be foolish to the world. But it's rightly the opposite. The wisdom of the world is foolish to God. Pharaoh is setting himself up. Moses is setting Pharaoh up for us in this divine battle that is going to be carried out all the way through chapter 14. He is setting the stage for us to see this divine battle that takes place between this one who perceives himself to be wise in his own understanding, perceives himself to be a god, and juxtaposed to this one all-powerful, all-knowing, creative God whose will will not be thwarted by the wisdom of man. Let us deal from a worldly perspective and wisdom toward the nation of Israel, Pharaoh says. Why? Why should we deal with them in this way? Notice what the text of Scripture says. Lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Verse 11. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Python and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in the dread of the people of Israel, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Now notice what's happening in this text of Scripture. Pharaoh is going to unveil for us three approaches from his shrewdness, from his worldly wisdom that he thinks will enable him to stop the spread of these Israelites. We see this first plan accomplished here in verse 10. Verses 10 through verses 14, the First plan that Moses, uh, that Pharaoh devises is that he is going to enslave them. He's going to enforce difficult, hard labor upon the people. He doesn't want them to multiply, verse 10. Yet we already know from the narrative back in verse 7, we already know from the narrative in Genesis chapter 1 that the people of God are going to fulfill the creative purposes of God. And so what does he do in this plan? He forces the nation of Israel to still accomplish all of their own priorities that they might have toward their own families, and yet at the same time enslave them to accomplish his own purposes. Now it's interesting here that we have these two cities that are mentioned that the nation of Israel is going to build. These are two cities that would rise in antiquity and be major influences in the ancient known world. And isn't it funny that the superiority of Egypt would have been accomplished by the nation of Israel, the people of God. So they set taskmasters over them. He's going to assign the nation of Israel, if you will, into, into groups he tells us in verse 11. And he is going to notice what the text of Scripture says. Afflict them with exceedingly heavy burdens. But will Pharaoh's plan thwart the will of God? Will it stop it? How about this? Will it slow it down? Look again in the text of Scripture from verse 10 and see what Pharaoh's concern is. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they what? Multiply. 
Now notice verse 12. But the more they were oppressed, the more they did what? The more they multiplied. But Moses isn't finished explaining for us the multiplication, the accomplishing of the will of God for the people of God. He tells it to us in two ways. The more they multiplied and the more that they spread abroad. Pharaoh's plan isn't going well, is it? In fact, there's some humor in this text of Scripture. Pharaoh is not only understood to be one single individual. Pharaoh was representative of the entire system of the nation of Egypt. He represented the authority of the entire structure of Egypt. To say Pharaoh was synonymous to say Egypt. To say Egypt was synonymous to say the Pharaoh. The Pharaoh was Egypt in every conceivable, possible, powerful, influential way. So it's not only that there's this one guy, this one dude who's powerful who is against the people of God, what Moses is telling us, and notice the number of times he repeats Pharaoh or the king of Egypt here. He's reminding us that the entire system of the enemies of God are set in opposition against the people of God. And look how difficult their labor is in verses 13 and 14. Notice how Moses defines it. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel be slaves. They made their lives bitter. They did that with hard service in all kinds of difficult work in the field. And their work, they were ruthless as they were slaves. Seven times in two short verses, these words of difficulty come flying out into our faces to describe the utter difficulty and oppression that the people of God have found themselves in. Pharaoh and the entire system is set against the people of God. But notice what happens next, verse 15. This plan isn't working. So the narrative is going to go for us to plan two. Pharaoh now comes up with a second way to oppress the people of God. Look what the text of Scripture says. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiprah and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded. But let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, These Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife can ever arrive on the scene. Look at God's response in verse 20. So God dealt well with the midwives. And notice the text of Scripture again. And the people did what? multiplied and they grew very strong 
And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. We see these different reflections on Pharaoh, Pharaoh or the king of Egypt. Who was the Pharaoh? In Egyptian understanding. He was the god of Ray. He was the sun god. So we already know even by the use of this title that there is this battle of, of gods, if you will. And so you have these gods who are going to fight it out. Can someone tell me the name of this God who is going to fight it out with Yahweh? Can you tell me the name of the Pharaoh? Did you see it in the text? Isn't it interesting that this powerful, mighty, influential, supposing of himself to be omnipotent deity, has no name but the Hebrew midwives who will function in some small way to provide salvation for the nation of Israel are named. Even by the lack of the naming of this Pharaoh, Moses is ultimately reminding us of just how insignificant those who set themselves in direct opposition to an almighty, all-powerful God truly are. This Pharaoh has no name, but God knows the name of the men and the women who by faith walk humbly before God. And these two midwives serve as an incredible example to you and me this morning of what it means to walk faithfully before God in the midst of great opposition and persecution. These midwives have two names. Now friends, we could fill an entire library in East Baton Rouge Parish with resources that go on and on and on about who these two midwives were. Were there only two midwives? Were these midwives Hebrews or were, they, or were these midwives Egyptians? Or were these midwives kind of the two women who oversaw the guild of midwifery for the Pharaoh? More than likely, I think the text of Scripture is showing us that these are two women of influence and power, and they are in some measurable way overseeing the midwives who have the responsibility of birthing not only the Egyptians, but also the Hebrews. They're responsible for giving birth to the children of the land. How do I suppose that? Well, number one, we know that the Egyptians are mighty in number. We know from the text of Scripture that the Israelites are mighty in number. They're going to come out of the land with being over two million people. There's no way that two women could run around and help give birth to all of these children. So Pharaoh sets out his plan that he thinks is going to stop the will of God. And isn't it interesting that Pharaoh's plan is grounded in this idea of birth. Go back to Genesis chapter 3 in your minds with me. You don't have to turn there. In Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 12, the Lord is going to give the curses 
out for the sinfulness of humanity. You remember that text? And as he comes to Adam and to Eve, one of the things that the Lord says to Adam and Eve, there is going to be this divine, long-tenured battle that is going to take place between what? The seed of the woman, who is who? Eve, and the seed of the serpent, who is? Satan. Notice what Moses is doing in this text. Moses is taking us all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. The promise of God that even though enmity will be placed between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, the seed of the serpent will never destroy the seed of the woman. And this is God's promise, friends. That God's will will ultimately be accomplished. I don't care how powerful. I don't care how mighty. I don't care how influential the politician or the supposed person of God thinks he might be. He or she can never stop the will of God. God's seed will continue and bring forth a Messiah who one day will ultimately redeem his people from their sins. A narrative of Satan seeking to destroy the will of God. And the Lord says to Pharaoh and to all world leaders, and to you and me, who apart from Christ have set our lives against the will of God, you will not prevail. Plan number two isn't going to go the way that Pharaoh planned either, is it? In fact, it does what plan one does. It works directly the opposite way. Kill all of those male boys. Why would Pharaoh want to kill the male boys? Perhaps it was because we already know from the text of Scripture, even back up to the very beginning, we've got to deal with these people in a, in a worldly wise way unless they multiply and war breaks out. Pharaoh's concerned that the nation of Israel is going to be too great. There are going to be too many mighty men and they're going to be able to go after Pharaoh and overcome Pharaoh. And so Pharaoh wants to wipe out any availability of the nation of Israel from being a mighty group of men. And he knows that the women will then just be uh, assumed into Egyptian society and, and within just a few generations there will be no resemblance of the Hebrews. But it doesn't work that way. Look what verse 20 says. So God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied. And they grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God. Look what God did for them. He gave them families. Now this is just a guess of mine and there's nobody that can tell us for certain. I'd like to make just a quick argument for you that perhaps these midwives were indeed Egyptian midwives and not Hebrews. Not Israelites. Notice what the text of Scripture says. They go out, they know that there's a difference between the way in which these Hebrews give birth and the way in which the Egyptians give birth. And already, multiple times, beginning in chapter 1, verse 7, we see this language of multiplicity. We see this language of multiplying, and we know that ultimately, that is covenantal language. 
That is language that speaks exclusively to God's relationship with his people. So now, in this text of scripture, why would the Lord single out these midwives if these midwives were already part of the people of God? They would have already received the blessing of God and multiplied. But notice what the text of scripture says in verse 21. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. See, friends, I think one of the things this passage of scripture tells us is the same thing that Paul has sought to remind us in the book of Romans. While the gospel is the intended, while the gospel is intended to the Jew first, it's also for the Gentile. And the gospel brings blessing to anyone who walks faithfully to that gospel message. And what this text of scripture is showing us, even in the early stages of the narrative of the Pentateuch, is that God's affection is being set toward all those who by faith will walk humbly with God. These midwives, these Egyptian midwives, who were not part of the people of God, have indeed received the blessing of God. Why? The text says they feared the Lord. But notice verse 22. Plan 1, verse 10 has failed. We see the results. The people multiplied. Plan 2, verse 15. Plan 2 fails. And what happens to the people? They multiply. Here is Pharaoh's third approach. I don't need the midwives anymore. They won't do what I tell them. So he commands all of his people. Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile. But you shall let every daughter live. And you're going to have to come back next Sunday to see if plan two works. Now listen at the narrative. The, listen at the lang plan three. Thank you, Will. Listen at the language of plan three again. And I'm just going to quickly note the irony. Every son that is born to whom? You shall cast into the Nile. But you shall let every daughter live. I'm going to give you a clue for next week. It's not only the Egyptian midwives that rebel against Pharaoh. Pharaoh's own daughter will rebel against Pharaoh and in doing so usher in for us this Messiah-like figure in Exodus chapter 2 named Moses who will lead the people of Israel where? Up to the land of Canaan. What do we learn from this text of scripture? What do we as the New Testament people of God take away? Look with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Verse 
the people of God, and that includes you and me, we too will face persecution. But like the Israelites, we too will overcome. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8. I'll begin reading in verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. For we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. And as Paul would reflect in Romans chapter 8, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. None of those things shall separate us from the love of Christ. Or as Paul would write in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling. God has oftentimes used throughout the narrative of Scripture, but not only through the narrative of Scripture throughout church history, God has oftentimes brought about the salvation of His people only after they have endured intense, difficult hardship. We, with great hearts of thankfulness, filled with thankfulness, should give thanks to God for the incredible blessing of this moment of, of history in which we have the joy of living. But it is true, friends, that the expression you and I jo enjoy at this very moment of great freedom is not the expression that many of our brothers and sisters in Christ at this very moment experience in their daily lives. God uses persecution to refine and to grow the people of God. And if ancient Israel, the Old Testament people of God, were not free from oppression and persecution, what causes you and me to think that we today as the New Testament people of God, will be free from that same persecution. I'll tell you what causes us to believe that. A false prosperity gospel that will only lead your soul and my soul to an eternity separated from God. We will indeed endure persecution. Secondly, God uses suffering in the lives of his people to advance his cause. Look with me in Genesis chapter 46. Stick your finger in Genesis chapter 46 and then go with me to Acts. To Acts chapter 13. Genesis 46 verse 3. And then come back to Acts chapter 13. Genesis chapter 46, verse 3. Here is a promise of God to Joseph. You remember earlier at the beginning of the sermon, I told you that Joseph was going to carry his family, his, his, his family back to Canaan to bury his father. And here's this narrative. 
And look in verse 3. And then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will do what? Make you a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will bring you up again. By the way, just a, a time out. I, I didn't even mention it back in our earlier text. But even as you read through the book of Exodus, and I pray that you will read through the book of Exodus with us, and as we go through it on Sunday mornings, and not only in the book of Exodus, I could show this, show this language to you a few times in the entire Pentateuch. Notice the way in which God uses this language of going up. It's always a reference to salvation. So God is saying, I'm going to go with you down to Egypt. But I'm also going to come up with you. So we have this promise in Genesis chapter 46 verse 3. That God is going to send his people down to Egypt. And what's going to happen while the people are in Egypt? They are going to experience intense persecution. But how does God use that intense suffering in the hearts and lives of the nation of Israel? He uses that suffering to accomplish his will. The suffering forced Israel to multiply in this rapid way that ultimately grew the nation of Israel to be and to fulfill what God had promised them all the way back to Genesis chapter 12. Now come to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13, verse 7. Here's Paul preaching in, in Antioch. Look what he says at the end of verse 16. Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out. Out of it. God uses intense suffering to accomplish his will in our lives. And friends, you and I are not free from God's purposes in our lives in this way. We hear from the writer of Psalm 23. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Friends, some of you in the life of this very congregation have experienced intense suffering in your lives. You've lost children at unexpected times. You've lost a spouse in the most unusual of ways. And there is a temptation in the heart of every person. If it were not so, we wouldn't have so many warning passages about it in the text of Scripture that when we face intense suffering, our hearts are prone to wonder, our hearts are prone to leave the God that we love. And listen to me this morning, friends. Persecution isn't necessarily a sign of God's anger in your life. Paul reminds us in the book of Romans that God is using everything for his good. I don't always have to understand God's good. And God's good surely doesn't have to be filtered through my human understanding of good. But friend, if you don't purpose in your heart at this very moment, while you're standing on the mountaintop, to trust in the good providential purposes of God in your life, when you do face that moment of intense persecution, I promise you, because we see it, you'll be like the person that James mentions 
in James chapter 5 that he gives a warning against. You will be prone to leave this God you claim you love. And in fact, if we're honest with ourselves this morning, perhaps in our own mind's eye, you could look around the room and be reminded of people who at one moment when things were good in their lives found it joyful together with the people of God but experienced a tragedy in life and we never see them again. God uses human suffering to accomplish his will in our lives. And we don't like it. And it's hard. And I want to avoid it. And I know you want to avoid it. But deepen your faith and your trust in a sovereign God whose will is not being thwarted by your own stubbornness, by my own stubbornness, or by the works of any other person. He is and will accomplish his purposes in our lives. And lastly, from Exodus chapter 1, not only is God using suffering or persecution, not only does God use, not only do the people of God suffer persecution, but we have the promise that we will overcome. Not only is God using suffering in our lives to accomplish his purposes, the Hebrew midwives teach us that the heart's right posture before God is one that fears the Lord. Can you imagine the intense pressure on these midwives? Number one, they were already considered to be part of the lower class of culture. Women in Egyptian life were not valued. In fact, we know from history that there was only one woman who ever rose to the position of, of Pharaoh. In every measurable, conceivable way, in Egyptian culture, not in, not in a godly culture, in a pagan culture, women were devalued. So here are these women who have absolutely zero authority or influence in any measurable way. Could easily be put to death by the hands of Pharaoh and no one would ever question it. And yet, what do the midwives seek to do? They seek to fear the Lord. Friends, we live in a current culture that in many ways reflects the Egyptian culture of her day. The culture that many of you grew up in in the South is a culture that is fastly waning. And the church no longer experiences the favor of culture. And if there's anything the last two years should have taught us from a worldwide perspective, the world system is not rowing in favor with the church. And increasingly, you and I are going to have to make a decision. Will I live my life in a way that fears and honors God 
or will I pursue the pleasures of man? The Gospel of John, in conclusion, John gives us this wonderful narrative. He gives us some narratival comments to help us understand what's been taking place in, in the narrative that he's unfolded. And he's seeking to essentially understand, help us understand the unbelief that has taken place in the hearts and lives of uh, the people who have seen the miracles of Jesus, but have not fully, completely, totally trusted in Christ. So in John chapter 12, in verses 36 through 43, John is going to seek to help us understand what has taken place. He's going to define for us the unbelief of people, why it's happened. And he uses the text of Scripture from Isaiah to prove it to us. So look in chapter 12, verse 41 with me. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the... Pharisees, they did not confess it, so, they would be, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. Verse 43, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Woodlawn Baptist Church, whose glory are we pursuing this morning? Whose glory do we desire to delight in this morning? Will you honor Christ or will you honor man? Will you honor God or will you honor and value the world's system and philosophy? Will you honor God and seek to live your life on a daily basis to bring him glory and honor? Or will you value the pleasures of this world and engage in all sorts of debauchery that might find you the right lady or might find you the right job? Will you students while you are in college, seek to honor God and prioritize God? Or will you seek to honor men in such a way that you neglect your own spiritual journey for the joy of earning an A or B in a course? Parents, will you honor the Lord and raise your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord? Or will you seek to grant to them and give to them the pleasures of this world such that you neglect the gathering of the body of Christ multiple Sundays throughout the year so that your children can experience the pleasures of this world? The Hebrew midwives feared God, and in doing so, God gave him their, his favor. 
And we have the promise of God today, friends, that for those of us who fear God today, we too will have the favor of God. How do we have the favor of God? By believing and trusting in the person of Christ. And in doing so, being given to us that forever presence of God through the person of the Holy Spirit who is always with us. Would you trust in Christ today? Would you believe in Jesus today? Would you give your life to him? Let's pray. God, we thank you for the revelation of yourself. We thank you, God, that you have given to us your word, and through your word, you have reminded us that your promises to your people cannot be stopped by the systems of this world or by powerful people in this world, but you, God, will indeed accomplish your will and your purposes in our lives. Would you spend a few moments, friend, where you're seated today and reflect on this text of Scripture? Who are you in this narrative? Perhaps in your own life, you're your own Pharaoh. You know what God has commanded of you, and you know what God expects of you. But in your own pride, in your own rebellion against God, you have set yourself up in opposition to God. And so you give declarations to God of what you're going to do that are contrary to his word. Would you repent of that this morning? Would you ask God for forgiveness? Would you humbly submit your life to Christ? Perhaps this morning you're like the midwives. And you can point to numerous examples of your life where you see God's work being accomplished. Where you see yourself honoring God, in this case honoring life. Would you thank God where you're seated this morning for his faithfulness to you? Would you thank God this morning for his work in your life? Would you thank God this morning that he has provided salvation for you? Would you ask God to increase the fear of God in your life? In just a few moments, friend, we're going to stand and corporately respond to the preaching of God's word. As we stand to sing, if you're here today and you Know in your own life that you are, if you will, like Pharaoh. That you have set your life in opposition to God, but God today has convicted you of your need to repent of your sins and to trust in Christ. And you have questions about what it means to trust in Christ. To live your life for him. Myself and Pastor Travis will be down front with delight in sharing with you how you can trust in Christ. But friend, you don't have to come see Pastor Travis or, or me. You can turn to someone seated next to you. There are plenty of people in this room that would delight in sharing with you how you can trust in Christ. Perhaps you'd like one of us to pray with you. That God by his spirit indeed would cause you to be like one of these midwives. That God indeed would cause you to be a person who walks faithfully with God. We would delight in shepherding your heart by praying for you. Or thirdly, maybe God has placed it upon your heart that this is a congregation in which you need to be connected to live out your life on mission with him and you would like to express an interest in being part of this faith family. This would be an opportunity for you to express your interest in joining this body of believers. Lord, as we respond to you,
we ask that our responses might be pleasing. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me as we sing?